Totally Football Show. Many are calling it the darkest day in the history of Leicester City Football Club. Outside the a helicopter belonging to the Leicester City Football Club's owner has crashed just outside their stadium. It happened about an hour after a home game against West Ham United. Vichai Siwatanaprabha was, was on board. board the helicopter. They crashed and burst into flames just minutes after taking off from the King Power Stadium last night. He bought Leicester City eight years ago, helping the club to win the first Premiership title in 2016. With what words do you cover a weekend like this? Saturday morning, the shock of Glenn Hoddle's sudden and serious illness and our best wishes to Glenn. Saturday evening, the tragedy at the King Power. 24 hours later, confirmation five people died, two pilots and three passengers, among them the charismatic Leicester chairman Vijay Srivadana Brava. It's only a little over two years since the same ground saw Srivadana Prava and his team serenaded by Andrea Bocelli and the entire footballing world for their part in one of the greatest sporting fairy tales ever seen. It's a tale now brought to a desperately sad conclusion. Shades of Ipswich Town in the 60s, Nottingham Forest in the 70s. But this is unique. A modern day football miracle. Blown their rivals away. They have blown us all away in truth. Premier League champions 2016, the amazing Leicester City. Well, to kick off this Totally Football Show, we're going to speak to Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, the author, of course, of Fearless the story of Leicester's incredible title win. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. You're in Leicester at the moment. What's the mood in the city right now? Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty sombre, pretty stunned. Um, I was down at the King Power Stadium this morning. There's just a, a growing field of Ks and tributes lying outside turnstiles 52 and 53. There's people, you know, there are people crying. This is first thing in the morning. There's a sort of silent and quiet mood around there. And everybody knows a Leicester fan, that someone that was at the game. It's not Newcastle, you know, it's not a football crazy place, but it's a place that's, that's very sort of proud of itself. And I think it's going to be a while before people can, can move on from this in Leicester. There are many kinds of football owners. How important was Shrivadana Prava's role in the whole incredible story of Leicester's win and indeed his relationship with the city? Yeah, well, You've got to remember the, the sort of terrain of English football when he arrived in 2010, when he bought the club for £39 million. At that point, I think foreign ownership had a pretty bad name. Venkies were at Blackburn, um, you know, making a mess of that. There were there were suspicions about foreign owners generally. And, and, and I know Leicester supporters who thought that when, when he arrived, this might just be another bad adventure for them. They'd had Milan Mandrich and that hadn't gone particularly well. He said quite early on in his um, stewardship that he wanted to be a Champions League club and, and, and he said in a very rare interview 
uh, to the local press in 2014 that he, he foresaw Leicester being you know top five team within three years. He was ridiculed for that, and he won the title two years later. You know, Leicester didn't buy the title by any means. The, the, the title team cost 21 million pounds, but but what he did was invested um, you know properly in the football club. He invested personally in players. Lots of, lots of acts of kindness towards the players that that sort of kept them feeling they were part of a family, very close to people like Casper Schmeichel and, and Morgan, and really was part of, of the spirit that Leicester had in that title winning season. Since then, has invested hugely in the club, spent you know, £150 million on transfers, is building a training ground, gave money to the university, to the hospital. We did you know sort of smaller acts of charity around the place. And he was somebody that I think Leicester's a city that takes in people from outside. It's, it's, it's had a long history of multiculturalism and immigration and and he was another person that, that came from the outside and was embraced by the city and epitomised what all football fans want their owners to be really and when I was down at the stadium this morning there were shirt, Aston Villa shirts, Celtic shirts, Barnsley shirts, Sheffield United shirts, he seemed to strike a chord for, for people not just connected to Leicester City but I just think genuine football fans. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Well, off we go then with this week's show. And here with us, we have Michael Cox. Hello, James. Hello to you, Michael. Jack Lang. Good morning. Good morning to you, Jack. And our very special guest today, Alvaro Romeo. Hello, James. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. So much football news for us to talk about uh, this week. The Classico, the Derby del Sole in, in, in Italy, the Classique in France, MLS Decision Day, of course, and around a Premier League action, which will conclude this Monday evening with Man City facing Tottenham but I think let's kick off because it was the biggest fixture in Europe this weekend with Alvaro Barcelona against Real Madrid certainly sounded exciting el campeón de Europa gana el campeón de Liga fiesta absoluta Barcelona 5 sí 5 5 5 Real Madrid 1 hasta siempre the sound there of Barcelona handing Real Madrid a manita a 5-1 thrashing on Sunday, which uh, is a result that's said to end Lopetegui's spectacularly ill-timed and ill-fortune spell on the Real Madrid bench. Antonio Conte rumoured uh, to be signing up with them today. Alvaro, y- you enjoyed this game? A lot. I think that it was a great football game between uh, two teams that they are going through some issues. Real Madrid with the manager, uh, Real Madrid with a terrible uh, squad planification for the season and Barcelona without Messi and however um, we saw that uh, Barcelona without Messi can still survive and can still be a very good team. I think that uh, uh, the fact that they beat in Sevilla they beat in Inter Milan and they beat in Real Madrid without uh, Lionel Messi tells you how committed some players are to Ernesto Valverde's ideas. Uh, one of them uh, I have to say Luis Suarez. He has been the outstand- outstanding performer of the week. He scored uh, three goals in a Clásico, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, didn't happen for any Barcelona player with the exception of Messi since Romario in 1994. Huh. And uh, I think that Real Madrid uh, yesterday was just in pure dereliction, but it's, they have been in pure dereliction since summer. Wow. Take us through the goals, if you will, because it didn't take long for Barcelona to uh, establish their dominance, that extraordinary build-up uh, to the first goal. More more build-up, in fact, than a Pogba penalty. <laughs> 
área, Jordi al área, peligro de gol, peligro de gol, el pase esto para Coutinho, go, 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 Notice there's Morse code going on in the background. Is that Morse code, Alvaro? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It has to be some sort of warning um, about, well, there has been a goal, but uh, I really don't know what the origins of Morse are, but uh, it, it's widely known and used in uh, Spanish-speaking commentaries. Do you, do you use it in yours? I use it as well. Uh, so what happens when a goal is scored? You hit, you press the Morse button. Yes, and it also helps to let the leading, um, the leading host know that there has been a goal in another ground. Okay. So he gets ready for that. Oh, so, it's sort of like a breaking news kind of like... Absolutely. Yes. But you don't know what you're spelling out with this Morse code that you're broadcasting every, every no. week. Unfortunately, I know that we use it. I do use it, but I don't know the origins of that. So probably shame on me for that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Coutinho puts... Barcelona up and then it's time for who, who was up next was it uh, Suarez no with the penalty it was Suarez yeah. with the penalty and then in the second half uh, Suarez scored a couple of uh, goals mm. and Arturo Vidal yeah so the second Suarez goal talk us through that do you want me to commentate it or well, you it? can do yeah <laughs> Michael if you do the Morse code for Alvaro <laughs> well I, I, will, I will explain it if you like uh, yeah. the ball was on Jordi Alba and uh, he passed the ball to Luis Suarez and uh, there was a uh, the first VAR decision in the classical history mm -hmm. and it went in favour of uh, Barcelona. It was a penalty of Varane over uh, Luis Suarez and uh, the Uruguayan take, took the penalty, he scored it and from that moment it looked like everything was set for Barcelona but Real Madrid played really, really well in the for 10-15 minutes in the second half. Mm -hmm. uh, that reminded me a little bit of the Manchester derby back in April. I thought that Real Madrid could come back the way Manchester United came back at the Etihad, but never happened uh, because uh, Valverde made a couple of uh, substitutions that made a difference in the game. Right, and then came the fourth Barcelona goal, which I certainly remember, and I, I imagine Sergio Ramos will be remembering for a while. Qué fallo, qué error de Sergio Ramos. Alvaro, we all love this about Spanish commentary, how people say goal and little else for about 60 seconds or so. Does it make commentating on a Spanish game just really easy? You know, whereas an English commentator will have to find things to say about a goal. Uh, it makes it definitely easier. Uh, me as a commentator, uh, when I shout the goal for over 10 seconds, I've got time to think about what I'm going to say. So I think that it's a way of uh, covering a little bit your back. And uh, it all started, I think, that in, uh, in the 30s during the World Cup, Brazilian commentators were at the ground and uh, they couldn't, uh, sometimes they couldn't see who had scored the goal, uh, who provided the assist. So shouting goal for 30, 40 seconds gave them some quality time to understand what happened in the build-up to the goal and then explain it well. So it all comes from there. It gave the listeners some quality time as well, 30, 40 <laughs> seconds of, of goal. But Jack, is it, were you aware of that story? I was not. I suppose it's their equivalent of having a mid-ranking former England international spouting... <laughs> <laughs> fairly generic description for 10 seconds or so. Very handy. That, that's amazing. Sergio Ramos uh, coming unstuck in spectacular fashion as well on that, on that goal. Absolutely. I think that Sergio Ramos this season is very confused. Mm, for some reason, uh, he underperforms when he's the big captain and the important guy. Last year at Real Madrid, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was the big gun in there. And uh, Sergio Ramos was... Uh, 
like it or not, he was a player uh, who was secondary or had a secondary role. Um, but uh, I think that uh, this season he's been terrible uh, for Spain, for Real Madrid. He's uh, taking some responsibilities that don't belong to him, taking uh -huh. some free kicks, taking some penalties, and uh, he's losing concentration a lot. Uh, altogether, with Varane's poor form after he won the World Cup, makes Real Madrid defence a very porous one. Right. Michael, did you, did you watch this game? Yeah, it was an interesting game because Barcelona were absolutely rampant for the first, well, the first half really in the last 15 minutes. But as Alvarez says, just after half-time, Real Madrid completely changed system. They went 3-4-3, Casemiro went into defence, which I wasn't expecting, clearly Barcelona weren't expecting because they really struggled to cope with Real, particularly down the flanks. And obviously they got the, the goal back from Marcelo. But then uh, Modric hit the post, Benzema had a really good headed chance. And in the end, I think 5-1 was slightly flattering for Barcelona. They were clearly the better team and they were the dominant side for longer. But they had a period where they really lost control the way that you don't associate with Barcelona usually. With all of that, Barcelona still made it five through Arturo Vidal at the end and uh, the Manita. Uh, Manita. Piqué uh, showed it. Uh, Piqué showed his five fingers again. Yes. Uh, every time Barcelona scores five against Real Madrid, he's the first one in the pictures. And uh, he's always like uh, teasing a little bit Real Madrid supporters. Uh, what I would take from this game is... Uh, the fact that Barcelona is a very composed team without Lionel Messi, uh -huh. but they are vulnerable as well. And uh, for 15 minutes, Real Madrid showed that uh, the game, in fact, should have finished with a 6-3 or a 6-4 scoreline. Um, Real Madrid could have scored many goals as well, but Cristiano Ronaldo wasn't there, and the players who had to, you know... Uh, step up? Step up uh, in his absence, they haven't done it. Benzema is nowhere near um, the striker we thought uh, he could be at Olympique de Lyon, or as the scorer he could be. And Gareth Bale, I'm sorry, but he's not having a good season. Uh, this is the time for him to be the leader. And uh, he's absent too long. I mean, uh, he's got uh, terrible dips of concentration mm. during the game. And... Uh, he seems to be totally detached from the game dynamic. In fact, some of the Jordi Alba runs on the left, they are coming in the place where Gareth Bale was. And he, does, he doesn't have any defensive commitment and Nacho was exposed and alone many times. I think that was a difficult thing for Bale because he was almost asked to play this dual role. One, this is the first class goal without Ronaldo. Here's your chance to be the Ronaldo, to be a star. But also he was having to play as an auxiliary right back really to contain Alba. So he was just caught between those two stalls, really, and didn't have a good game at all. Yeah. Anyway, a manita, a, a slapping, would you call it? Mm, yes. Yeah, OK. Uh, a lethal slapping is the uh, El Mundo Deportivo headline out of Catalonia. I uh, had it on Monday morning. Marca, meanwhile, going with not all Julen's fault, Julen Lopetegui. Was it Julen? Is it Julen? Julen Lopetegui. Julen. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter because he's gone now. Anyway, or has he gone? <laughs> has he gone? Um, Absolutely. I mean, 99%. And okay. uh, Real Madrid is uh, having a meeting today at 7pm in which they will probably announce the signing of Antonio Conte hmm. as the new Real Madrid manager. Lots of listeners have thoughts on this. Gautam Karakar says, what are your thoughts on Conte? Will the Madrid players take to his methods? Is his poor European record a problem? B Max says, is the Conte announcement the end of those Hazard to Real stories? Well, let's begin with the first question. I think that uh, Antonio Conte will have to change many things at Real Madrid, especially in the structure of the team. He's a manager who likes control, who likes uh, love, uh, you know, uh, set pieces and things like this. And Real Madrid, however, has like many solo players, many independent uh, souls, the likes of Asensio, 
Isco, the likes of uh, uh, Marcelo as well, that they will have to adapt to a totally new rigid system. Mm. And at Chelsea, it was just Eden Hazard, the player who had somehow that freedom to perform, but the rest of the players, they have to be tremendously committed to the defensive structure. And Antonio Conte will have to change the mentality in Real Madrid. And also, uh, he has been regarded uh, by Spanish media as uh, a control freak and a really strong man. And Sergio Ramos was asked about uh, the new manager. Uh, the question was kind of, does the new manager have to be a really authoritative person? And uh, Sergio Ramos said something, uh, well, he said literally, that the new manager will have to earn that respect. He cannot impose it mm. at Real Madrid locker room. I don't know if this is a bad start, but I tell you what, uh, Antonio Conte seems to be the totally opposite of what Lopetegui is. Barcelona, two points clear now at the top of Liga, ahead of Alaves, Sevilla, Atletico Madrid, and then one behind that lot, Espanyol, Real, uh, and uh, Sergio Ramos, with his respect, all the way down in ninth place, seven points off the top. Only one win in their last six, that was against Vittoria Pilsen, and injuries possibly to Varane and Marcelo as well. Jack, you're feeling a bit sorry for Julian Lopetegui this morning. A tiny bit. I think football is a merciless business, and I don't think... Uh, Lobotegi's work over the last few months, you know, he's not going to look back on it particularly fondly. I think he's made mistakes, but just on a personal level, I think it's very sad for him because he's seen the two jobs that would have been the pinnacle of his career slip through his fingers. One, not really his fault, I would argue, in what, four months? And he's now someone, you know, he's worked his way up at Spanish youth level with Porto, earning these opportunities, and now he's never going to get a job on this level again. Do you not think? Well, Surely he can so. earn this, these chances again. Well, he's not going to manage Real again. You, he's not going to manage because you say Barca. That, mm, football is merciless on one hand, but at the same time, there's very few professions that will relentlessly offer extra chances to people who've failed at it before. Do you know what I mean? Once you get in that loop... That's fair, but I think within his particular pyramid, I, I don't think he's going mm. to get to those uh, the top of that again. James, and I would like to add that he seems to be a man with a lot of bad luck. I mean, he made a terrible decision last summer, uh, signing for Real Madrid while he was the Spanish uh, national manager, but... Um in his first game playing as a goalkeeper for Real Madrid late early, in the early 90s, he conceded five goals. In his first game playing for Barcelona as a goalkeeper, he conceded five goals and he wow. made a terrible mistake. Then in his first TV appearance as a TV pundit, he fainted live <laughs> on television. And he didn't have a first time in a World Cup with Spain because uh, he was sacked before the World Cup. What I mean with this is that... He's becoming the laughing stock of Spanish uh, of Spanish population, and that's a really, really unfair thing on him. He seems to be a very unlucky guy, jinxed in some sort of way as well. Mm. All right. Well, let's just conclude our classical chat uh, with a player who Graham Hunter was ooing and ahhing over last week, and Henrico says, "Could you do an overly simplistic comparison of Artur with the guy that is on Alvaro's Twitter header photo?" I'm guessing that must be. Uh, is it Xavi or Iniesta? What Xavi Hernandez. Xavi okay. Hernandez. I had the chance to interview Xavi and he was an excellent speaker. And uh, yes, it's a very good comparison. I think that uh, he became uh, an established player in the lineup since the game in Wembley. In fact, that game in Wembley against the Spurs was very balsamic for Barcelona. They got balsamic. Yeah, that's the like way they soothing. Would, yeah, soothing balsamic. Do it we was... use balsamic in that sense in this country? No, I don't I like so. it. I like it. Well, uh, 
I, yeah. I'm really happy to make a contribution to English language. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it's not a very good one. But he played really well at Wembley. He surprised many. Uh-huh. And uh, he has established himself as a starter. In fact, Barcelona lineup, we all know now more or less what it is like with Coutinho uh, upgraded to left winger or a striker, let's put it that way, because he was never a game organizer. And Arthur being the player who is somehow taking the reins of... Uh, uh, of the game and deputizing in the absence again of Andres Iniesta, a player who seemed to have left a massive gap in Barcelona and a great hole uh, impossible to fill and Arthur is doing very well. Mm. I think that Artur has to learn perhaps uh, to hide the ball slightly, slightly better because sometimes his uh, ball controls are not uh, perfect, but I think that he's got all the potential to be the next Barcelona good midfielder for the for the next 10 years, I would say, because oh. he's 22 years old and he he seems to be a very professional guy. Jack, you're nodding vigorously. Yeah, for I think for Brazil as well, he's going to be a real game changer. Brazil have lacked that kind of passing, controlling midfielder for, well, 10 years or so now, maybe even a little longer. People see him as someone who's going to bring a new dimension to Brazil's play and in the same way that he, he allows Felipe Coutinho to play a more natural advanced role for Barcelona on the left. I think he's, Coutinho is better there. Same for Brazil. We saw in the World Cup, Coutinho as a central midfielder didn't really work because he hasn't got the, the legs or the defensive now to play there. And Artur solves that problem. Let's check in with Chris at pitch side. Chris! Chris, are you there, Chris? Oh, hello. Uh, yeah, your fella here has just fainted. I don't know why. <laughs> it's only a corner. Ah, yes. Another classic case of a same-game multi making a game too exciting. Combine multiple bets from the same game and everything becomes exciting, even corners. Plus, you'll get your money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Paddy power. Enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match fourfold plus same-game multi-bets. Max free bet £10 per customer per day. Minimum odds. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Uh, Michael, ahead of Spurs taking on Man City, uh, Liverpool smashed Cardiff, uh, Chelsea smashed Burnley, Arsenal got held, and Man United did an impression of a solid kind of proper football team, <laughs> mostly, I mean one or two bits of fripper in that. Michael, what was your big takeaway from this weekend? Well, I guess that the big teams are continuing to just pick up results. I mean, it's the obvious thing, but you look at the Premier League table and there's no fewer than six teams who have more than two points per game. And uh, at the bottom, still two sides without a victory. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does seem quite a unequal Premier League this time around. I do think that's just because the good teams are very good. We've got by far the best selection of managers here in any country in Europe and probably the best the Premier League has ever had. And I think right. that's just leading the... The top five or six clubs away from everyone Since else. Cardiff's promotion, that, yeah? <laughs> In part, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, uh, well, OK, well, there's so many standout performances. I, I mentioned one or two of them. Chelsea certainly impressing many people with their visit to Burnley without Eden Hazard, but without any great... Uh, problems uh, among the, 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 the talents coming in were William, Ruben Loftus-Cheek and, and a bubble Ross Barkley. Yeah, 4-0, and it, I think it could have been a lot more. They were utterly dominant, created a lot of chances. Barkley, of course, uh, really taking advantage of that start in midfield, showing that he can bring perhaps the goal threat that Mateo Kovacic doesn't always bring. Kovacic is a very good player, obviously, but doesn't score many goals. Barkley scored a lovely goal here and has really hit the ground running the season. So, yeah, a goal here and two assists... 
He scored midweek as well, uh, on Thursday night anyway. Uh, yeah, astonishing form. Looking good. And another player I thought who, who played well here uh, probably didn't get all of the attention was Alvaro Morata. He was, I thought he was a lot more positive, a lot more mm. forward-facing. He often, when we see him play poorly, he looks to just bounce the ball back to his midfielders, doesn't even look to turn. But here he was always trying to take the ball forward, had a few chances, scored a nice goal. And I think if he can improve and grow into that role, he will bring an extra dimension to Sarri's play. Olivier Giroud is, an, is a good option, I think. I've always quite liked him. But Morata, with a bit of confidence, I think can be a very useful player. Excellent. Is, is Barkley, though, is he the biggest surprise of the Premier League season so far? Yeah, possibly. I think because they've got other options there and because people had really been quite negative. I mean, even the the reaction to his move was incredibly negative. Although I said it wasn't too bad an idea if you could go back and listen to that podcast. But yeah, he's he's just embraced that new role. And I think the fact that Chelsea are playing a different kind of game, playing in that central midfield role means you are higher up the pitch. You're on the edge of the opposition third more. He's receiving the ball in good positions. And he just brings a, a kind of directness that I like to Chelsea's midfield. And um yeah, looking in great form. Bobby asks, Barkley versus Ruben Loftus-Cheek versus Kovacic. Who'd you pick? Well, to go back to something I said before, I'm not sure that Kante is undroppable for Chelsea, and particularly in home games against weaker opposition. Personally, I think Barkley is, at this point, by far a better player than Loftus-Cheek. I know he scored a hat-trick in midweek, but I, I've never quite understood the fuss about Loftus-Cheek. It feels like people are desperate for one Chelsea player to come through that youth academy and it's Loftus-Cheek at the moment who's who's getting that praise. But I think Barkley is a, a better all-round player. I think his ball control's better. Um, I preferred his assist to his goal. I thought that was just a wonderful, quick footwork. Mm. James, I would like to raise here the name of Fabregas because okay. he, he's, a, he's a top midfielder, or he was a top midfielder. And he's a very... I, I am witnessing this with the curiosity of a person who doesn't understand why such a player can become such a... Such a wasted talent. I don't understand why Mateo Kovacic, Ross Barkley, and uh, even Jorginho uh, could be named always uh, ahead of Cesc Fabregas, considering how good he was. But at the same time, when I saw Fabregas playing in the Carabao Cup a month ago, you don't see that there is any rebellion in him to what he is now. You don't see that he is annoyed about the fact that he has been deployed to the number 17 player in the squad. And yeah, I think Ross Barkley deserves to be probably considered ahead of Fabregas because Fabregas hasn't offered nothing over the last six or seven months, which is a real shame. Maybe he'll get a run out this week because, of course, it's Carabao Cup uh, again, <coughs> featuring excitingly Frank Lampard's derby at the bridge on Wednesday. Frank Lampard's derby, who had a 1-1 draw with Borough at the weekend, which was... Uh, Notable for many things, but including among them, an amazing own goal by, is it Jaden Bogle? They'll be they'll be telling you more about that and pronouncing it correctly on the uh, Totally Football League show. The other big question out of Sunday's game at Turf Moor, meanwhile, is that ongoing one about what has happened to Burnley, a side that was famous for digging deep and backs to the wall and grinding out and gritty defensive and all that kind of thing, now conceding goals galore. Is there any tactical reason why that's so, or is it just they're worn out? I don't think there's a tactical reason. I mean, they're playing roughly the same way. I guess the one point to make is that if you listen to to people like Duncan in terms of the expected goals, they were always kind of punching above their weight there. Right. They certainly overachieved last year. And I think there's just a balancing out. I mean, they're, they're 15th. They're not in too much danger, I don't think. I, I still think they'll finish mid-table. 
Now elsewhere on Sunday, Man United got a very handy 2-1 win over Everton, a match watched by the 12 children who were rescued from those flooded caves in Thailand back in July. Barely had the wags begun to form there. Have they not suffered enough bombos? Then United actually turned in a good performance. Is that fair? They were good, although I think the concern will be that they played the best they've done all season, yet were still hanging on the end. There's, there's still some problems there. I thought Pogba was probably the best player in this game. Pogba mm. and Martial's combination was excellent. Now, how much of that was the fact, due to the fact that Fred had come in? Is that, is that connected? I think partly it frees him a little bit. I think Fred is a good uh, connections player. I think he's not always the most showy, but he takes the ball, moves it on quickly. He's got a good speed to his distribution. I think Pogba does enjoy that sometimes because it's, when it's just him and Matic, I think there's a little bit more emphasis on him to... Mm to spray the ball round, whereas Pogba often is better moving with the ball or maybe doing something a bit more ambitious. He said he was ambitious in in this game here. Uh, Tomo saying after Pogba's penalty on Sunday, it got me thinking, is there a time limit on taking a penalty from when the referee blows the whistle? No. Right. Should there be, do you think? Not really. Do you have any strong views on Pogba's penalty technique? Well, I don't see what it brings. I, I mean, as I said, I think he, he was probably the best player in this game and yet he made two pretty bad errors I think essentially just from showing off the penalty miss with his run up that I don't really see what it brings. It seems to break his momentum and Pickford was clearly well aware of what he was going to do. And then the giveaway for the second goal, the penalty for the second goal, it's not the first time he's done that this season. There was the home game against Wolves where he played a really silly pass. And again, that kind of scoop pass, it was just unnecessary in that position. And Mm. it seems like this is what you have to put up with with Pogba, which I think other managers would embrace. But Mourinho is a manager who wants players who are 7 out of 10 every week. They'll do the same job every week. And that's just the opposite of what Pogba is. On the penalty, I thought that was a bizarre time to do the the shush motion. Having you know, he got lucky on the rebound, but ostensibly just really messed up quite badly to do the the finger to the lips was quite strange. And the, that scoop pass that Michael was talking about. Now and again, Pogba has these moments in games, and it it's normally a physical confrontation where he tries to lever an opponent off the ball, kind of you know, in a slow turning circle, holding him away, and it. He wants to demonstrate that he's perhaps got the a strength advantage or a better technique than his opponent. But now and then, it's quite rare, but just for two or three seconds, that individual battle becomes more important to him than what the team is doing. So, he'll, you know, someone's trying to get the ball off him and his priority in that moment is to show he's stronger than this guy rather than, you know, there could be two or three passes right. on. I don't know whether this was one of those occasions, but it was certainly... Uh, showboating when it was not really necessary not really in a good area either right. he certainly has his uh, own agenda when he plays football and uh, as uh, he said um, normally he takes on these individual battles uh, which are sometimes something that uh, the, the game is not asking for but I will say that even though he's an extremely baroque player he's uh, offering something uh, really important to Manchester United which is the possibility of creating chances right. uh, in fact uh, for instance that uh, victory against Newcastle United 3-2 it was an excellent crazy pass from Paul Pogba to Martial that uh, well uh, started uh, started that comeback and I think that he's a player of moments and he's a player that Manchester United is benefiting from despite all his uh, all his individual mistakes absolutely so the other big big news about this game was the fact that Lukaku who's been having a terrible time was dropped and Martial came into the starting lineup. Sam Carney saying, is that the way forward for United? They seem a lot more dynamic like this. An absolute belter of a, a goal, the, uh, the second one. Yeah, though I wouldn't say Martial came into the starting lineup because he was already in it. It, okay. was, it was more Fair that enough. they brought in Fred and, and changed the 
right. put matter forward. Fair point. But he has he has begun to earn a place in the team of late, which is the big difference, I guess. Yeah, he's been excellent. And, and as Alvaro says, his relationship with the Pogba seems very good. And I think that's the problem with Manchester United has been the lack of good partnerships. Uh, when I look at a good football team, I don't necessarily say he's a good player, he's a good player. I think, well, they work well together or the midfielders work together, the forwards work well together. There's no relationships at Manchester United that I can see in terms of partnerships across the team. And Pogba and Martial is maybe the one that looks, you know, they look on the same wavelength. I gather they're quite good friends and close off the pitch. And that probably helps both of them because they've both been criticised by the manager and by supporters and by people like us. And I think rightly so, but they clearly have a good bond. And it was good to see them combining well, not just for the goals, but there was a wonderful pass in behind from Pogba. They kind of bisected the the centre-back and the right-back. It's just perfect ball that Martial wants. Um, So it's good to see him playing well. Moving on, uh, on Sunday, TV screens across the land were adorned with the score caption, Cry Arse, as (laughs) Selhurst Park played host to the Gunners and ended their winning streak. Were Palace unlucky? Were Arsenal unlucky? There was a handball, there was the the Zaha tumble. Somebody was unlucky here, surely, Jack. (laughs) Thanks for that. Uh, I think it was probably just about fair because there were... Some strange goings on. I think that the Lacazette handball was mm. the one real moment of uh, refereeing madness. I actually thought the well, the Zaha penalty. I thought that was definitely a penalty. Oh, okay. The first was it penalty, the first one, the Mustafi. I also thought that was a penalty. Okay, right. Uh, so yeah, I think I think the Lacazette handball was the only real point of contention. So Palace were unlucky. Do you know that they've been awarded since uh, August 2004 two more penalties than West Ham and four more than Newcastle despite playing 228 Premier League games fewer than both of those sides. Yeah, and I mean that's what happens when you have kind of tricky quick players. Mm. The other, you know, Zaha wins a lot of penalties, the other one is Vardy and it, you know, I think fans often look at these stats and think that they're luck or it's refereeing bias but Palace are dribblers, aren't they? They don't have much else in their attack aside from players who are very good at dribbling, so they mm. do get these kind of penalties. Well, six hours and 57 minutes on from their last goal at home in the league. They finally scored again at Selhurst Park and they pick up their eighth point of the season. And the, the green shoots there. Um, the only worry is, Jack, or one of the worries is that just when they're showing some signs of recovery, do you know who their next three games are in the league? I'm sure you're going to tell me. Chelsea, Spurs and Man United. Chelsea, Spurs and Man United. Wow. Ooh, that Granite Shaka free kick. Have some of that. Astonishing. I mean, and whenever the ball hits the post and gets into the net, it's even nicer. I think Granite Shaka has been a really versatile tool for Emery. It was last Monday that I saw him play as a left winger for the first time in his career, probably. And he did really well in that position. And he seems to have found some sort of new life between Nay Emery. Because last year, I remember that Arsene Wenger left him on his own in the midfield. El Neni was never a good player to escort him. And Saka seemed to be always like a losing control of the game. And this season, he is very well uh, structured around him. There is a big scaffolding with uh, Torreira whenever he plays uh, with Gendouzi and uh, he is showing the player that he can be the player that he was in Germany uh, when he was player for Borussia Mönchengladbach Mm. Anything else you'd like to say about Arsenal's performance? Well I think as we've said before this kind of dropping points was probably long overdue for Arsenal and I think it probably was their worst league display of the season I think even against Chelsea and City they did show some signs of life 
I thought they were really sluggish in their possession play. The centre-backs and centre midfielders just held the ball without really penetrating. Ozil wasn't really involved at all. I think the one positive for them is something they really didn't do under Wenger, which was they counter-pressed very well. Lacazette's very hard-working, can kind of sneak up behind players and win the ball. Torreira gets up tight to opponents. And I think that was how they won the free kick for the uh, Xhaka goal. So it's maybe a, a positive that even when their possession play isn't great, they still can win the ball and create chances. Mm. And I believe that uh, Mesut Ozil uh, had another bad uh, afternoon. On Monday, he was fantastic, absolutely great. And uh, yesterday, he was already back to his normal form. And uh, I was thinking that maybe we shouldn't be asking uh, Mesut Ozil to be that player Sunday after Sunday, in the same way that uh, we shouldn't be asking Picasso to paint a beautiful painting every couple of weeks. It's just very difficult to keep that level. And the mm. crossbar for Mesut Ozil is that high because he, push, he puts his own crossbar up there. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to live up to that. Right. It's with definitely you... Spanish. Yeah. With that comparison. Ozil's <laughs> yeah. eyes, incidentally, were designed by Picasso. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's hard. Wow. Okay, we'll be back with more. Um, Premier League after this. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Mark, you got the league table there. Yes. So what's the top look like? Liverpool are top? Yes. While we wait for Man City and their, their clash with Spurs. Liverpool's 4-1 win over Cardiff. Liverpool had 80% possession. Cardiff had just two shots. Bizarrely, though, they did become the first visiting team to score a league goal at Anfield since February. Interesting. Pretty one-sided game, though, apart from that. Uh, How was Fabinho, Alvaro? I think he had a very professional performance. He's uh, definitely getting adapted uh, to, to the system. And uh, he needs to play more games because at Monaco he was playing with more confidence. And uh, let's don't forget that this is a fabricated midfielder. Uh, he was a right winger uh, when he was 18, 19 years old. Hmm. And probably he doesn't have all these uh, automatic, uh, automatic moves, um, even though he played as a midfielder for Monaco. Perhaps adapting to being a midfielder at Liverpool will take him take him some time. But he he's a very good player and he he showed that he's uh, up to the challenge of playing for Liverpool. I like him and I think that Shakiri did a very good game again, which is really good news uh, for Liverpool because he's offering something. Uh, Really good, I think, which is the fact that Liverpool can play with a 4-2-3-1 whenever it's needed to attack more. Mm. Michael mentioned uh, partnerships earlier, and I think Salah has one with Shakiri. you can see. I don't know if it's a, a Basel old boys connection, but they seem to really enjoy playing with each other. Laid on some goals for each other. Salah's ball for Shakiri's goal was lovely. And just on Fabinho, I think his uh, that languid style, I think, sometimes masks his quality but it's interesting to know that he uh, he didn't make the Brazil squad in the summer and the whispers coming out of the camp there was uh, some of the Brazilian press had inside knowledge on why certain players weren't selected and the reason that Chich didn't go for Fabinho was that they doubted his ability to uh, maintain intensity in central midfield over the course of 90 minutes which you might imagine would be one of the demands playing for Jurgen Klopp. So Klopp has obviously seen something a bit different in him. And I think, uh, you know, after a very slow start, the, the last couple of performances, from what I've seen, just clips, have been, he's been very, very smooth, very calming presence in front of that back line. Mm. Elsewhere in the Premier League, Watford had a spectacular win against Huddersfield. Jack, you were there. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Brighton got their third straight win, all one nils. 
and not very much happened between Saints and Newcastle. Also, the Almanacs will show that Leicester and West Ham had a 1-1 draw, but I don't think any of us have too much desire to talk about that right now. Let's let's talk about Watford-Huddersfield, because you were at Vicarage Road, Jack. I was. Wow, what a goal by Pereira. What a goal by Dale Lefebvre. Which was your favourite? Uh, I preferred Dale Lefebvre's, actually. Did you? Because I thought the defending... Well, the defending for both was pretty shoddy, let's be honest. But the, the first one in particular, Pereira, they just rolled out the... The welcome mat. It was a bizarre sequence of non-challenges and yeah. strange movements. The, I th- the, sorry, just to say that the, when they showed the replay, because I was agog at this this, this goal, and mm. then they showed that he essentially, I think, touched the ball once <laughs> on, on his way past about it five. Was very strange. Players. I initially tweeted, "Oh, you know, superb goal," and then watched the replays and thought, "Well, actually, he's." really had it very easy there I mean mm. he, he did well to maintain composure and there was a nice little body swivel at the end but the the Huddersfield defending was abysmal the De La Feo one at least I thought there was a bit of dynamism to his run the mm. real uh, that kind of explosive pace that De La Feo gives you I love De La Feo when he's on form I think he's a, a lovely player but the Huddersfield defence I think there's just something too nice about them they got a lot of defenders who are technically good but both of those goals show they, they just needed someone to hack these guys down outside the box and they're, they're just a little bit too polite. Right. Uh, Huddersfield now without a win in 14 matches. So they slipped to the bottom. Are they the absolute bottom, Michael, on your sheet? Yes. All right. Up next for them, intriguingly, Fulham. Mm. That'll be a game and a half. Uh, Fulham, who got beaten 3-0 by Bournemouth this weekend. Hooray for the Cherries and who dear for the Cottages. Cottages to have a place close to your heart. I know... Mike, a lot of people uh, have a soft spot for Fulham. Um, Fulham are a bit of a soft spot themselves, aren't they, uh, at the moment? Yeah, they are. This was concerning because they didn't even really create chances. You know, that's been the thing they've been able to bank on. They're open in the back, but they usually do score goals. I thought this was really impressive from Bournemouth. Mm. I like the fact that Eddie Howe completely changed his system. He went to a 3-4-3. and they just played really well. I mean, Callum Wilson up front, when he's on form, is I think a really good all-round forward. He, he's a penalty box player, but can link play as well. And they have uh, the two guys, Fraser and Brooks, who are both perfect for this kind of drifting inside. Wide midfield roles. Uh, Brooks got on the score sheet. Fraser, I think, got two assists. And I think if there's some kind of award we can have as kind of outsider player of the year, I'd give it, give it to Ryan Fraser so far. I think he's been excellent every yeah. time I see him. Um, and yeah, Bournemouth are going really well. I mean, up to sixth, as you say, only two points behind Arsenal. Bournemouth are brill. That much is clear, and so is Eddie Howe. As for Savisa Jokanovic, um, right, they, I, it, does it all come down to next weekend against Huddersfield? What's the what's the feeling there? There's a bit of a desperation derby, for sure. Uh, I think Fulham's plight can be summed up by just the complete scattershot way he seems to pick his defence and the the goalkeepers are actually a real really good demonstration of this they had a good goalkeeper last season Marcus Bettinelli I saw Fulham a number of times in the championship and he was very good very solid performer very consistent they go out and they buy not just one new goalkeeper but two they buy Fabri from Besiktas and Sergio Rico there's two new Ricos in the league this season I do get confused thank you Uh, and then they've all played this season Bettinelli got an England call-up and then was dropped. Fabry started. I don't think Fabry's very good. I used to watch him in the Champions League for Besiktas and he's very error-prone. Rico played in this game. I just don't know how you can start a season playing three different goalkeepers. It's bizarre and I think it underlines the kind of muddled-up thinking that governed their summer in the transfer window. Mm. 
Fair enough. And they just given Bettinelli a new contract as well, and then dropped him straight away, which is interesting. All right, Jukanovic has used 22 players so far, including three goalkeepers, made 25 changes to his starting 11 and used at least four formations. Interesting. Brighton took on the team who don't do any of that stuff, Wolves. Although, actually, they did uh, they did make a change to their starting 11 for the first time pretty much all season. Adama Traore coming into the uh, starting lineup. Not to a huge amount of effect because this one was another Brighton success. Glenn Murray once more, which was great and it was a lovely finish, wasn't it? But surely he shouldn't have been playing? It's a tricky one, mm. right? I mean, I'm sure that the, all the routinary tests have been, have been done as well. But the, the truth is that a couple of, well, 10 days ago, uh, the images looked terrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will agree with that. But of course, I mean, all the, all the, tests have been conducted by Brighton, that's for sure. So I'm really happy that he scored. That's the only thing I can say, obviously. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just that, you know, the, the post-concussion period is, is such a dangerous one. Um, but, yeah, uh, incredible performance from him at the age of 35. Was that his 100th goal for for Brighton or in the Premier League? Yeah, for Brighton. For Brighton. Across two spells. Okay. Yeah. Superb. Wolves have uh, lost now two straight matches against Watford and Brighton without scoring and have Spurs and Arsenal coming up in their next two league games. So things getting a little bit trickier there for Nuno Espirito Santo's team. Also not conceding goals or indeed scoring them, Saints and Newcastle. Was this one of those nil-nil draws that was actually quite exciting and full of chances? Well, I only saw it on Match of the Day and it was last to Match of the Day and I thought this is going to last about 90 seconds, these highlights, and they mm. went on for ages, actually. Did, so it was clearly did it just seem game. like it? Perhaps, well, maybe. I mean, what I thought was notable from the highlights was twice Southampton players really should have passed when they um, when they shot from kind of silly positions. El Yanusi, why he didn't square to Austin in the first half, I've no idea. And there was a kind of similar incident when Lamina shot when he should have played in long. But you think maybe that's born out of the fact that Long and Austin aren't scoring goals, and maybe the midfielders are just not confident. Not, yeah. you know, if you had uh, if you had even Hazard in those positions, I dare say they would have passed. Yeah, no shots on target for Newcastle. No wins in six for Mark Hughes. Nineteen shots for Nathan Redmond, and no goals. And most of all, no wins in ten for Newcastle, which is the first time in 120 years they've gone the first ten games without a win. Jack, you're making funny faces when you hear those stats. You're worried for Newcastle. I suppose I am, yes, but they've got a very, very uh, favourable set of fixtures coming Ooh. up. If Have they? Memory serves. Okay. Yes. They're playing against Watford, Bournemouth, Burnley, West Ham, and Everton. They've got five home fixtures, five winnable home fixtures. Right, OK. And they've got eight winnable games. Right. Yeah. How many of their opening ten would you describe as winnable? <laughs> None. Very, very uh, a point well made there, James, but... Uh, Anyway, I'm, I'm it, not it's not news. Newcastle are in some trouble and Saints can't score goals neither. Anyway, uh, that for now is the situation in the Premier League. Uh, we talked about the classical, but there's so many other big matches and major developments around the world to touch on. So we'll, we'll get on to some of those after this. Listeners writing questions in. They all seem to be for you, Alvaro, which is nice. Here's Keith Mannix, for example. Ask Alvaro about the finances of Barcelona and Madrid. Rumours seem to suggest they are not on stable ground. And currently, Liverpool are Barcelona's biggest creditor. Uh, but Alvaro, are leaner times ahead for the Liga? 
I wouldn't be that dramatic. Oh. I think that Real Madrid has the, the money if needed to make a couple of big signings. But uh, Real Madrid president is also thinking about expanding the Bernabeu, not mm. making a new stadium, but expanding it. And obviously that's going to be costly. So probably he's a bit shocked with the current price tax. And the next move he makes, he wants to make the right move, not signing a player like Dembele for 150 million <laughs> that doesn't bring immediate performance. When it comes to Barcelona, it's different. The Barcelona way are tremendously big. The 80% of Barcelona's income goes to the wages. So I don't think that at the minute Barcelona wants to sign any other player because having another expensive player in the payroll can uh, unsettle them financially. Jack Tanner says, Alvaro is a Basque. Can he explain what is going wrong at Athletic Bilbao? Many things. I don't know where to start from, but the, the new manager hasn't uh, found uh, a lineup yet. Uh, and I think that some key players like uh, the likes of Muniain, Iñaki Williams are not performing. And the best striker we had over the last 10 years, Aritza Duriz, is 38 years old now. Ooh. And he won't be scoring 25 goals a season anymore. Speaking of which, Stefan says, is Diego Costa past it? Check these stats out, Jack. He's been at Atletico for 12 months and he's only scored three goals. Three it's not great, is it? That's I mean, terrible. In the league. In the, but still, it's in not a good. year. No. All right, is he past it? I don't think so. Okay. I think that Diego Costa will be back. OK, David Whitworth wants to discuss the magnificent victory of Real Betis, who went to San Siro last week and beat Milan there in the Europa League. Says David, I was there with 7,000 other supporters and it was an amazing experience to be part of. How surprised were you with that result? Not very much, because Betis is a club that can offer really good performances, but uh, this weekend they have lost their game. So uh, what they are finding it hard is to be regular. It's so key to be regular, isn't it? Uh, Milan, by the way, bouncing back from that defeat this weekend, they were playing against Sampdoria. Always a good game when these two face each other. And Gennaro Gattuso had made lots of noises about his job being on the line. It did seem that... Positions were being drawn up against him after the defeat in the derby and then the Europa League loss as well. And they promptly went 2-1 down against Sampdoria. I don't know, were you watching this game at all, Michael? I, I did see this, yeah. A fabulous uh, demonstration of counter-attacking football from Sapanara and, and Qualiarella. Qualiarella's mm. uh, ball for Sapanara was just extraordinary. Uh, you know, when you talk about looping passes across field while you're running at full tilt. And then Sapanara did more or less the same back to Quagliarella and, and he presto Sampard responded to Catroni's uh, opener by going 2-1 up. Then Higuain and Suso made it a 3-2 win for, for Milan. It was all very exciting. I, I, I enjoyed that enormously. Uh, Napoli-Roma, yeah, one, one a disappointing draw for Roma because uh, even though it was down in San Paolo, Mertens equalising in the 90th minute. That means that Juve have re-established a six-point lead at the top. They they looked a little bit tired post-Old Trafford uh, away at Empoli this weekend. Empoli took the lead, actually, but a brace from Cristiano Ronaldo. Did you see his second? I did. Reminiscent of his goal for Manchester United against Porto a long time ago. Oh, really? Okay. He doesn't score many goals from range in open play, mm. so that was kind of a collector's item. Well, uh, that, that is down to the fact that uh, he has become more of a striker rather than a winger. Uh, and he plays much more in the box right now. That's why you don't see Cristiano Ronaldo scoring that many goals from the long range. But still, he's got such a powerful shot. It was beautiful. Certainly was. In France, who's a French football fan here? Jack. Yeah, why not? Oh, and then, oh, you had, well, a Le Classique for a start at the Villadrome. Did you see how this started? Oh, with the kickoff. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I missed that. So, you know, now and again, when a, a, a team will cynically start a match by booting the ball 
into touch far mm. down the pitch. You see it. Uh, it's quite a rare thing, but especially rare at the highest echelons of the game, I think. And, I mean, Florian Tovan took it and he didn't even get it out for a throw and it went out for a goal kick. Wow. And that really set the tone, I thought, for the first half, which was fairly uh, low on excitement. PSG with uh, Eric Maxim Trupamoting in the starting lineup. Right, well, because um, Mbappe had been benched because he turned up late for a team meeting, apparently. As well as Rabiot. And Rabiot as well. <laughs> so they're, they're sat on the bench and Marseille holding out quite bravely. Yes, and then Mbappe comes on and just changes the pace of right. the PSG attack to breakaway goals. He's really good, isn't he? Very good, very fast. Uh, showed his uh, his running boots in that goal. But the PSG second goal, I thought, was a really nicely mm. constructed move with Neymar involved and Julian Draxler polishing it off. Very nice indeed. The good thing about that goal was when Mbappe got the ball, there was two. I thought there were two passes on for him and he chose an option that I hadn't considered to the left rather than through the two defenders or to the far side. And I think, you know, when you see a player doing that, usually when you're watching a game, you can see the passes they should play. But the top players come up with passes you can't even see. Mm. And I just think that's the most exciting thing. They're eight points clear, Jack, of Lille, which has blown my mind because last time I looked, Lille were fighting off relegation at the other end of the table. They they only just avoided the drop last season. Now they're second. Yes, under Christophe Gaultier, they've got... I only really watch highlights from a lot of these games. I don't watch Lille week in, week out by any means. But Nicola Pepe, oh, yeah. they've got a winger who's very, very exciting. Wouldn't be a, a great surprise to see him linked to the Premier League teams. I see. Uh, no doubt you're too busy following Monaco's antics under Thierry Henry. They got their second straight draw, so that's three games. No wins yet for Thierry Henry. This time it was 2-2 at home to Dijon, which uh, leaves them still in 19th place, ahead of bottom side Gangon, only on goal difference. How about Germany? You a fan of German football, Michael? Not as much as most people. Really? OK, but I bet you're a fan of Jadon Sancho. Yeah, he's brilliant, isn't he? Got, he? <laughs> he got a brace this weekend in Borussia Dortmund's 2-2 draw with Hertha Berlin, who continued their excellent form against the big sides. But Sancho, though, five goals and eight assists now for the season. But Bayern uh, are now only two points behind Borussia Dortmund. They're back up to second place. They beat Mainz 2-1. Lovely volley from Goretzka. Did you see that? I did, yep. Yeah, very nice. It's weird how Bayern can seemingly be in crisis and yet still win the league at the end of the year, isn't it? Yeah, it's like Mo Salah and his scoring stats, which are yeah. is, you know, more or less the same as the top scorers. But I guess it's just when they accustom you to kind of another level of performance. Mm. Uh, speaking of which, Scotland, uh, League Cup uh, semi-finals, of course. Celtic beat uh, the SPL leaders Hearts 3-0 at Murrayfield to book a place in the final, which will be Jack on the 2nd of December. Will they be taking on Rangers in that final? No. No, they will not. Because uh, Derek McInnes' side, Aberdeen, dashed Stephen Gerrard's hopes of a uh, place in the final there. A 1-0 win for Aberdeen with the goal scored by Lewis Ferguson, who's very much of of uh, Rangers stock, son of uh, Derek Ferguson, nephew of the former captain Barry. So there you go. More of that kind of in-depth knowledge. Totally Scottish football show. That's available Monday night. Stroke Tuesday morning, depending upon your your schedule, listener. It's about you. Uh, as you know, among the many many valuable services that Totally offer you these days is also an, a Totally Football Show American edition. I've been enjoying the opening uh, instalment of that, uh, and, and and I'm looking forward to this week's, which will be describing what happens on Decision Day, 
when the two final playoff spots were sorted. And Jack, did you follow this? I did not, I'm afraid. The LA Galaxy? They had this home game with the struggling Houston Dynamos and uh, they went 2-0 up but ended up losing 3-2. Cue lots of shots of players kind of face down and the plastic turf. It was it was all very dramatic. Anyway, they blew their chance of getting into the playoffs. They did that roaring comeback under Ibra and then, and then it's Real Salt Lake who go through instead into the knockout round matchups. Are you aware, Alvaro, of how the, the playoffs work in the States? Not I much, am. Not much. I can I tell, you. tell you. All right, so basically you've got one, two, three, four teams have gone straight into the semifinals. That's New York Red Bulls, Atlanta United, Sporting Kansas City and Seattle Sounders. And then you've got another eight teams who are going to battle out this midweek already to take the other four spots in the, in the semis. So Wednesday it's uh, New York FC, they're taking on Philadelphia Union. Dallas uh, are up against uh, Portland Timbers. And then on Thursday it's DC United with Wayne Rooney against Columbus Crew and LAFC, who did get in, which is going to make that sting even more for Galaxy. LAFC will be taking on Rail Salt Lake. So it could have been a Los Angeles derby in the knockout round matches. I find this so exciting, mainly because I just love all the names. Anything Kobe Jones can do. Yeah. <laughs> James Richardson. No, no. It was actually great, the thing, but I just I find it so much fun, MLS. So there's another episode of our new Totally Football Show American Edition with Kobe Jones and Co. coming at you this week. In case you're curious as to what it might sound like, it sort of sounds like this. Here they are discussing Wayne Rooney and his impact on DC United from their first episode. This team wasn't a playoff contender until Rooney arrived. Ben Olsen wasn't considered such a fantastic coach this year <laughs> until Rooney arrived. It, it's the honest truth. They were at the bottom of the East, yeah. you know, and then Rooney comes in and then all of a sudden, you know, this one player has had an impact that has changed the fortunes of everything in that organization. Yeah, and I, I think the new home part as well for the team the home for Rooney, you know, he's he's lived his entire life since he was 15, really under scrutiny. He was photographed in, in national newspapers in yeah. his school uniform as a teenager, as was his girlfriend, now wife. So for them to move away from that, where he's a, a tabloid sensation in England and live in somewhere like DC, where he is bottom of the news list for any, any journalist out yeah. there, really feels like it's rejuvenated him. You know, I'm sure he's thrilled to continue his goal-scoring streak against the City Football Club. And uh, he scored the penalty, which he hasn't always done during his career. More from Kobe and company coming up later on this week. So looking forward to that. Uh, Jack, anything you'd like to finish off with today? Any quirky story? Put a smile on our face. We could talk about the proposal in a league game in Chile. Go on. Uh, so Eduard Bello, a Venezuelan guy, scores a goal early on in the league game just after a couple, of, play for? couple of minutes. And Tafogasta. Uh-huh. And who are they playing? Everton. Interest, interesting, yeah. The Chilean Everton. Mm -hmm. uh, he scores and he makes a beeline to what appears to be the bench. You think, is he going to celebrate with his manager? He's not. He keeps running, uh, eventually finds a way to hop into the crowd, gets down on one knee and proposes to his partner. Wow. She Sensational. Said, she said yes. And he wasn't done. Scored another goal later on and went off injured. Wow, it was a big day for him. I hear that the, the Everton, they all, all the opposition players joined in the applause of the stadium. There was. It seemed to go down pretty well. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice story. Right, that's lovely. And I would like to say that the future bride uh, plays for the Venezuelan beach volley national team. Really? Uh, her name is Gabriela Brito, so this is going to be a 
a couple of uh, sports and fitness. Possibly so. <laughs> Possibly, if, if, you know, if indeed they choose to have children. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, oh, I see, they are going to be a couple. They are going to be a right, couple. Yeah, no, absolutely, that, that's certainly true. Do you know, it's not, it's not unprecedented, this. I mean, I don't. He's, as far as I know, he hasn't proposed to anyone else this way. But loads of other players have. One in Russia this summer, and one in Guam, which is, I guess, the famous example where a, a, a guy did. Do you want his name? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Ashton Serber, apparently, who plays in Guam uh, against. He plays for Napa Rovers. They were taking on. It's the, the, the bitter rivals, Guam Shipyard. So he's, every part of this sounds made up. <laughs> he scored a he scored a, remi- a remarkable bicycle kick, and uh, th- and he proposed to his girlfriend. And can you believe this? I'm watching the referee show him a yellow card, mm. a, a, a congratulations card is the only card that ref should be showing. Um, yeah, I'm watching it. There you are. He points. He's taking his shirt off. That's not going to help. And they, oh right, so he's got a t-shirt on. And it says "Marry Me?" question mark. I can only hope that she had a T-shirt on saying yes and underneath her. The referee heartless. Anyway, luckily uh, Ashton there completely unperturbed by the uh, mean-spirited official. Anyway, uh, that said, listener, uh, let's get the odds on some of the things that we've been discussing this week. Producer Ben's been talking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line as usual. Lee, let's talk a bit about the Premier League weekend. Can Bournemouth finish in the top six? They are doing unbelievably well at the moment. They are. I love watching them play. It's great to see the story of Bournemouth. Um, but we don't think they can finish in the top six. They're nine to one, which puts them way down the betting. Um, but it's great to see their trajectory. Well, uh, in other news at the other end of the table, can Huddersfield, rock bottom at the moment, can they stay up? Well, the odds suggest no. They're still the two to five. That's odds on favourites to get relegated ahead of Cardiff and Fulham. And they're also favourites to finish rock bottom at 17 to 10. Um, That feels slightly harsh. They seem quite lively at the weekend, but it's just not going their way, is it? Well, let's look to one of the big games in the midweek in the Carabao Cup. It's Chelsea. They're hosting Derby County. Derby, of course, managed by Frank Lampard. Um, He managed to get one over Mourinho, his old mentor in the previous round. Can he do one over the club of which he made his name and reputation. Well, we think it's a long shot, but Lampard was pretty good at those, wasn't he? So maybe worth a punt here. They're 10-1 to 1 to get a follow-up shock, which is a lot shorter than the price that they would have had for Old Trafford. But Chelsea are odds-on to win at 2-9. to nine. A draw after 90 minutes might be interesting. That's 9-2 to two and would mean penalties, which everyone loves. Well, you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. Be gambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football Show returns on Thursday when we'll be joined by Daniel Story, Julien Laurent and James Horncastle, possibly, depending on his uh, on his international commitments. Many thanks. So in the meanwhile, to Michael, to Alvaro and Jack for joining us today. And you, listener, and you. And we'll see you Thursday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And make sure you check out our other football podcasts, the revamped Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the brand new Totally Scottish Football Show. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. 
that's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.